1: And I'm Nathan C. love Today we have a very exciting episode for you. Uh, so much less depressing than last week, <laughs> and very much kind of in the vein of uh, classic kind of perspectrum topics. Um, yeah. So I'm yeah. really looking I know
0: forward it, to this episode. I know it sounds like I like getting emotional during these podcasts. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at least not that kind of emotional. Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah, it would be pretty selfish if... Uh, you liked when bad things happen, so you can yell yeah, on no. the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so today we are talking about, uh, well, well, our first segment will be focused on Bidenomics, or basically the Biden economy, um, and why, uh, despite its improvements, it still feels like it's failing so many Americans. And mm-hmm. for our second segment, we're going to dive into a study... Uh, you know, released a few years ago that kind of comes up periodically and is refreshed as we think about mortality data that compares basically the impact to life expectancy of conservative versus liberal policies because the jury is back on conservatism.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to hear the verdict. (laughs) It's a surprise. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder what it could be. I wonder what Mm -hmm. it could be. Yeah, I don't know. You know, knowing knowing our show, it's probably going to be a bunch of bleeding heart bullshit.
1: Yeah, absolutely, a bunch of soy boy, <laughs> bleeding
0: heart, <laughs> weak ass pansy shit. <laughs> I so just speaking... like to point out, I I resent the soy boy thing, not because I care about like any gendered stuff. Yeah, you know, I if mm-hmm. you if you if you want to call me a a feminine man or whatever, that's fine. I love feminine sure. shit. That's fine. Sure. But yeah. like, I hate soy. Soy is horrible i mean i grew up drinking full-on raw milk i'm not talking about okay. any of that store-bought shit sure you know not even S- just whole milk straight, like, straight up r- straight up <laughs> raw milk my family owned a share in a cow so mm-hmm. that we could get raw milk yeah all right that's what yeah. i grew up on so yeah. i resent the accusation of the soy shit okay you know yeah, you want to call me effeminate that's fine but yeah I, I don't, don't fucking do. <laughs> I don't fuck don't, around with soy. I don't eat processed bean products. Uh, <laughs> although, have you had tofu? I have. It's gross. It tastes like rubber. I couldn't disagree with you more. I, I'm, I really, I'm sorry. I, I think
1: I agreed with you a, a while ago, but tofu has really grown on me uh, in recent years. I, I haven't tried
0: soy milk, but... You know what? Pa- power to you, brother. Thank uh, you. It tastes Thank like rubber so to me. <laughs> you just have to put enough sauce on it. <laughs>
1: anyway speaking of uh soy boy shit let's talk about
0: (laughs) (laughs) so the issue i don't think he's ever eaten soy in his life honestly i I think i don't know like
1: soy i don't soy milk is a nice liquid protein it's like uh you know
0: you don't have to chew it it's very easy to consume (laughs) yeah but like so it's just milk just fucking drink milk you don't have to God. chew milk either. Big milk lobby over here. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Got you Nathan? know I'm big milk. You know I'm big milk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I am paid off by big milk. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: wish. I would take I would take like an in-kind oh, contribution I would, of oh, raw like milk. I, you know?
0: I don't even like I don't know if we're ever gonna have ads on this pod, but I would totally do a milk ad. Although like, I would totally do that. Although we should get we should get into this
1: at some point because this is milk is no political joke. Cause like <laughs> fucking milk lobby dude are the people that get in the way of having unpasteurized raw milk that you can just buy. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm on board with got milk. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I
0: got raw milk. Everything's political. Sweet raw milk. Even milk. <laughs> Everything <laughs> it, Yeah. Milk is so political.
1: Yeah. Highly political.
0: Anyway, goddammit. it. Let's talk about,
1: let's talk about Bidenomics. So
0: with his milky hair,
1: with his milky frothy white hair. Um, okay. So the kind of the issue at hand is that um, democratic commentators and the Biden administration are trying to make the case that the Biden economy is strong and has gotten a lot stronger throughout his administration. And you know, they, they talk about a ton of metrics they cite to attempt to convince people that this is true. Um, and in many ways, it, it is true. But there's a problem in that people don't aren't feeling it. People don't really believe yeah. it. Um, so, like, Gallup has a, um, an indicator called the Economic Confidence Index, which measures people's assessment of their confidence and happiness with kind of the economy and its trajectory and currently at the most recent polling 19% of americans only 19% of americans rate the economic conditions as excellent or good with 44% of americans rating them as poor and 37 describing them as only fair so we've we've got like a big mismatch here and it's it's one that is increasingly frustrating to the Biden administration and the Biden campaign trying to run again in 2024, as well as uh, Democratic commentators and even economists who are all trying to say, like, hey, things are good. And it's kind of falling on deaf ears. And so we wanted to, like, dive into, like, okay, what's going on here? What's the real kind of economic record that we're looking at? And should people actually be satisfied or is, is the Biden administration just out of touch?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should start out by looking at some of the ways in which the economy actually has somewhat improved. Yeah. Um, Because there are definitely some fairly solid metrics Mm -hmm. that do demonstrate some pretty decent improvement. Now, one of the things that I think that we do need to be fair about is Biden did take office around the height of the pandemic. Yes. So yeah. economic like the, the economic state of the United States was not great when he started yeah, when, when totally. he took office. Now you can make an argument as to how much of that can be blamed on Trump and how much of that can be blamed on the COVID policies. Mm-hmm. And I I think that it's I think it's fair to kind of adjust for that. Yeah. So I want to kind of so when talking about some of these numbers, I do want to give kind of the the numbers that it was when biden took office the number that it is now but also the number that it was prior to the pandemic yeah i think because that's i the, think that yeah i think that's
1: the right yeah. way to think about it ultimately like the pandemic was an important blip yeah <laughs> not not like a yeah. blip it was a really significant couple of years but an incredibly unprecedented one and yeah but it's been you know multiple years it's 2023 now and so like <clears throat> to your point we're in the post-pandemic, post-COVID era, and so yeah. like, it's yeah it, the 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 record for Biden has to be compared to what our expectations are,
0: which is you know yeah that things have continued to get better, yeah, and I think it's also fair to make the argument that it's very possible that Biden did a better job at the at economic recovery than Trump would have done. Mm-hmm. It's fair to make that argument, but you cannot make it. Definitively. Yes. Because we you know, yeah. we we don't know. We yeah. we Trump wasn't president, we don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So one of the biggest metrics that I think we should look at is of course uh unemployment. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, when Biden first took office, unemployment was eight point zero five percent, which is pretty significant. Uh yeah. it hadn't been that high since 2012. Mm-hmm. The annual average of 2022 was 3.61%. Yes, yeah. And the most recent numbers put it at around uh, 3.5%. Yeah. That's a significant decrease.
1: Yeah, totally. And relative to like our history, this is pretty much historically low unemployment like basically since the 1970s, we haven't seen consistent kind of unemployment at this rate. And even in kind of the troughs of the economic cycle where like unemployment is at its lowest, even then it's around four to 5%. So three, 3.5 is a really great result.
0: Yeah. 100%. Now compare that to 2019, uh, which was right before the pandemic was really exploded. Um, the average unemployment rate was three point six seven percent. So mm-hmm. it's close to around what it was, but it mm-hmm. is a little bit better. Yeah,
1: totally. And yeah. and like this is something that I think the Biden administration and Democratic pundits emphasize a lot: is unemployment is at like a really nice rate. They like specifically also point to Biden's legislative accomplishments in the form of you know the uh, Chips Act. The Chips and Sciences Act, so adding kind of um, chips manufacturing, microchip manufacturing to the United States, Uh, you know, uh, they point to the Inflation Reduction Act and also the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So all of these things are helping to add a bunch of jobs, and they, you know, specifically quote numbers like adding 13 13 million jobs to the economy, including 800,000 manufacturing jobs. And, like, these are real, tangible improvements.
0: Yeah. And in total, uh, jobs are up. According to According to factcheck.org, there have been uh, 10,726,000 jobs that have been added under the Biden administration. That's a pretty significant number, and that is yeah. that is higher than, than the Trump administration. Um, there has been an increase by 44.6% of job openings. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a 3.2% increase in the third quarter in terms of economic growth this year.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: and ultimately,
1: like, low unemployment combined with, you know, e- emphasis on growth in job openings and stuff like that tends to help wage growth, which we have been seeing. So, like, thinking about looking at, like, wages over time, so if we look at, like, average earnings per hour for private sector employees, for example, in December 2019, on average, people earned about 28.37 cents per hour. And that and that's just using an hourly number uh to make it compar- comparable. Um this includes all private sector employees, right? And so by twenty twenty, December twenty twenty, even during the pandemic, this had this increased by five and a half percent to twenty nine point nine two cents per hour. Um twenty nine dollars and ninety two cents. Um and then if you take out like the spike in wages that happened like in April and May during the pandemic, this increase of 5.5% represents the highest year-over-year increase in wages since before 2007. And what follows this period is one of the largest increases in wages in decades. So uh, the average year-over-year growth in wages from 2007 through the beginning of the pandemic was about 2.5%. But from June 2020 through september 2023 we averaged about 4.7 percent year-over-year growth uh each month right um and like this represents an enormous like growth in wages for private sector employees as like an example segment of the population yeah so
0: pretty remarkable yeah yeah and also uh let's look at deficit spending yeah um since he took office which you Know when he took office in 2020, deficit spending was um 3.1 trillion, that's a significant amount. Uh, mm-hmm. now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's now, now it's uh, it's 1.6 trillion, which is still a lot, <laughs> still, but that's still a fucked up. That's eye. crazy.
1: Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that. That's remarkable. So, basically. When Republicans are claiming that Democratic spending is, like, killing the U.S. economy, and that's why Biden economics fails, which is literally yeah. what they're saying, they're just totally lying.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, you know, because I want to go ahead and I want to make sure we're giving a full picture, uh, in 2019, the deficit spending was uh, $983 billion about. Okay. Gotcha. Thereabouts. Um. So that was prior to the pandemic. Now, I think there are a few other important pieces of context that we do need to look at.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things is the fact that the deficit spending was significantly e- increased under Trump following the passage of the Trump tax cuts. And those Trump tax cuts are still in place. Yes. All right, they're yeah. still in place, which means that. You do. You should be taking that into account to an extent when you are trying to figure out, okay, how much of the current deficit is the result of the Joe Biden administration, and how much of it might be some excess parts of the Trump administration. So, although, also to be fair, Biden
1: had the opportunity to unwind some of those tax cuts specifically for corporations and didn't. And so, like, like yes, part of the deficit is like a big part of the deficit is Trump, but. Biden, def- like his pro-business angle, definitely
0: incorporates some of that. Uh,
1: some of that deficit,
0: couple, but, but also to be fair, also did he did also establish a corporate minimum tax rate, which yes. did increase taxes which on corporations. Huge. And I yeah. think that this back and forth right here, yeah, perfectly kind of encapsulates Biden uh, Bidenomics yes, in a nutshell, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is the fact that there is always going to be a caveat within a caveat on top mm-hmm. of a caveat sure, with a qualifier that qualifies <laughs> the caveat and a caveat that qual that caveats the qualifier and i can't decide how i feel about that because like
1: the like on the one hand puts and takes right we're gonna give a little here get a little there like is what a lot of people want well what a lot of people claim to want out of politics. We want bipartisanship. We want compromise, all that stuff. At the same time, I don't like it's really frustrating when someone doesn't take an opportunity to go all the way when they can do it. For example, with the yeah. with the tax thing with the corporations, like Biden, yeah, Biden increased the top the high end of the corporate tax rate, which is great. Um or yeah, increased it, but not all the way to where it was prior to Trump taking office. And then to your point, also added a corporate minimum tax rate. But, ¿por qué no los dos? Like, yeah. why not just, you know, and like, I don't, so I don't know what he bought with that compromise. And that's a bit of the frustration that I have with the Biden administration.
0: And this goes back to the episode that you and I did when we kind of changed our tone on the pod to start directly advocating for, for Biden during the mm-hmm. 2020 election. Yeah. Where we actually have an episode that's like a, okay, one last warning about Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And what we said was that what was likely going to happen is he would take office and things would maybe get a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Things would definitely be better than they were under Trump. But even if we get them to the point where they are better than they were under Trump before Trump took office... yeah we have to recognize the fact that things were not good. Yeah. Like the reason why Trump took office to begin with is because people were so fucking annoyed with establishment politics. They mm-hmm. were so fucking annoyed with the status quo. People were hurting. People yeah. were hurting supremely. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, uh, fucking wages. Michael brought up wages in terms of you know dollar amounts, but yeah. let's look at wages adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Wages adjusted for inflation, um, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, if you look at the line between 2005 and 2022, it's almost a perfect straight line. Yep. It's, like yeah. the The way they measure it is an ECI amount, uh, a real ECI amount. ECI stands for Employment Cost Index, and the Employment Cost Index. When adjusted for inflation, in
1: 2022,
0: Mm 104.4; 2005, 100.1. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I think that's a key point.
0: It hasn't fucking moved.
1: (laughs) I think that's such a key point, and and I want to emphasize this. So, in a press release by the White House, like attempting to garner attention and support for Bidenomics, they said, "Quote: The president and vice president understood." That it wouldn't be enough to simply go back to the economy we had before the pandemic. And if you look at our economic indicators, that's where, that's essentially where we are. Yeah. So I don't want to say that the Biden administration doesn't deserve credit because, like, we've talked about some of the advantages. Also, like, economic recovery post pandemic was not a guarantee. Under Trump, it, it, to your point earlier, Nathan, is not necessarily a guarantee, like would have been less likely under Trump. Like the fact that we the fact that Goldman Sachs has reduced their like predictive probability of a recession from like 30% earlier this year down to uh 15% is a huge accomplishment by the Biden administration. But like, avoiding worst case scenario is not enough to run on and claim to have a great economic agenda. Like, to your point about inflation, they're celebrating, like, there's so much celebration on the Democratic side of the fact that, you know, for the first time in like over a year, in like in May, inflation was only 4%, which is a pretty normal inflation rate. Maybe a little high, but not crazy. It's certainly not crazy relative to the, you know, uh, months of, you know, near 9% inflation that we saw throughout, like, 2022. But the problem is that 4% in May was on top of a 8.6% year-over-year increase in prices from the May before. And that was on top of a 5% increase in prices from the year before that. So, like, the thing is, like, relative to 2019, Things have gotten significantly more expensive. If you look at the underlying measure of what inflation measures, which is the consumer price index, right, which is a standardized, like, which is a cost of a standard basket of consumer goods in the United States indexed to the price of goods in 1980 or 1982. So basically, if goods cost you $100 in 1982, um, in September 2019, before the pandemic, that same basket of goods that would have cost you $100 in 1982 cost you 257 bucks in September 2019. So that's about a 2 per, 2.3% growth rate on average each year, so a compound annual growth rate. But, but, but by 2023, September 2023, that same basket of goods that would have cost you $100 in 1982 and $257 in 2019 now costs $308. So from 2019 to 2023, that's a nearly 20% increase in your costs. So you can't pretend like it's just like like inflation is no longer a problem because we've already locked in the higher prices from multiple years of really high inflation, which even despite historic wage growth, to your point, Nathan, means that real wages relative to 2019 are totally flat. Yeah. So yeah, we've literally like (laughs) what's what's so frustrating is that we have people telling us that things are getting better and improving. And like all of us have been, you know, working our asses off and like investing in our lives and trying to do better and trying to make things better for the past few years. And it's as if we've been in a time machine and we were just reset back to our starting place in 2019 like yeah. it is a big accomplishment by the Biden administration that things aren't worse that's that's <laughs> honestly some in some sense progress but like basically we've bought you know that progress with like multiple years of all of our hard work and stuff like that and it's and it's really frustrating and out of touch to me for a for an, an administration to attempt to take credit like label yeah. their incredible economic agenda bidenomics When, like, all we've done is clawed our way back to a baseline that was already pretty shitty to begin with.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, Biden's approval rating was the highest when he was cutting people checks. All right. When he was giving people tangible economic relief. Because, I mean, I'll say it again. Like I said it before. Making people life better, maybe making <laughs> making people want voting for you, yeah. not making people life better, not making people want voting for you. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, the the Republicans are trying to completely one hundred percent blame inflation on Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, which doesn't. And work. he
0: does well. He does deserve some blame, but not for the reason that they're saying. Yeah. All right. Because their argument is well, because of that. Because of the checks that he cut to you, because of the things he did to actually help everyday Americans, that destroyed the economy. All right. Because of the the one of the one of the actual good things that he did, that that is what contributed to inflation. But we know that that's not the case. Yeah. I know that I've gone through these numbers with you with you all before, but I'm just going to very quickly go over them again. Um, The Economic Policy Institute laid out what accounts for the current increases in. in goods in the private sector and they found that uh in terms of unit labor costs which means wages that that only accounted for 7.9 percent of the wage of of the the price increases Mm -hmm. which which is compared to the 1979 to the 2019 average of 61.8 percent all right again 7.9 percent point. 8%. 8%. So, so wages are just not driving inflation. Wages are not driving inflation yeah. whatsoever. So that's yeah. complete bullshit. Yep. Um, next, non-labor input costs. So this it would be, you know the price that it takes to actually get goods distributed. This is where you would start to see the numbers in terms of bottlenecking at ports of entry Mm -hmm. for goods. Plus
1: cost of raw materials and stuff like that, which can be influenced by things like bottlenecks.
0: Yeah. So during the COVID pandemic, uh, that accounted for 38.3% of price increases versus the average prior to that, 26.8%. Okay. So... Still an increase, yeah. all right? That still accounts for some of it. Mm-hmm. But then we look at corporate profits. Yeah, Corporate profits. So during the pandemic, 53.9% versus prior to the pandemic, 11.4%. Yeah, mm, that's so crazy. it is clear that the primary driver of inflation as a result of the pandemic was corporate price gouging. Yeah. That is that's a fact. That is what happened. And so you can't blame the you know the Biden administration's fucking stimulus package that actually put money into the hands of everyday Americans for inflation. Yeah. You have to look at what's actually driving it. And yeah. yes, bottlenecking was a huge part of it, but after that, the biggest driving factor was corporate profits. Now The Biden administration could have advocated for several ways of trying to reduce that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Democrats actually did attempt to pass some measures in order Mm -hmm. to try to address that as well. Uh, The House of Representatives did pass a law on corporate price gouging. And there has been advocacy for the idea of a corporate windfall tax, Mm -hmm. which basically means that there would be a significant tax on the, um, the excess profits that they would have gotten from the pandemic. Yeah. But... None of that ever passed. Yeah. And Biden did not really fight for it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, corporate tax would be huge. I mean, Biden couldn't do this by himself, but trying to tax like, um, like, uh, stock buybacks, like trying to figure out a way yeah. to make it so, like, to basically hem in the ways that corporations can just indiscriminately add profit to their books. Right. Like, yeah, this yeah, I I totally agree, and and I want to emphasize that I, like I think keep in your mind that the drivers of inflation are to some degree supply chain and raw materials costs, uh, you know, essentially due to problems like problems as a result of the pandemic, and then corporate price gouging, um, under the cover of economic uncertainty, right? They're basically sneaking in corporate price increases because everybody's expecting price increases. So when they didn't, you know, when they don't have a significant increase in costs, they can still pass the buck to the consumer. Yeah. Now let's take a step back and think about how we fight inflation. How the Biden Fed, which to be fair is mm-hmm. not controlled by Biden, right? The Fed is independent, but how the Fed gets from nearly 10% inflation to just 3 to 4% inflation. The way you do this is by increasing the Fed rate, which yeah. go back to episode like one or two or three or whatever, like we did a whole thing. I think that was our on, second episode on, ever, yeah, yeah, on interest rates. But essentially, the Fed or the Federal Reserve sets the cost of borrowing money for the economy, right? And that and what that does is that it makes it more expensive to borrow money, and as a result, it um, leads ideally leads like corporations to invest less in new projects right so there's less free money moving around it's more expensive to add money to the economy in the form of credit the other thing it does importantly is it raises the cost for consumers like you and I to borrow money to fund our lives and in that way it also together those two things decreases demand for goods of services in the economy because things are more expensive right it, or essentially it doesn't increase the cost of goods but it makes it more expensive to buy those goods and fund them by borrowing money but let's take a step back and think about what's driving inflation it's the supply chain so having enough goods where we need them for people to purchase them so not demand right it's it's an increase it's a decrease in available goods not necessarily an increase in people's demand for those goods and its corporate greed and yet by raising the interest rate the people that are paying for lower inflation are consumers mm. but because we can no longer afford to borrow money to fund our lives we have to cut back so even though it's not our demand for goods that's driving up costs and it's not you know it, it it's it's the amount of stuff that's available and is corporate profit We are the people. We're having to reduce our demand for goods in order to pay for that inflation, which is, I think it's a huge point. Because, like, yes, inflation is going down. That's success, right? That's pretty good. But it's being funded by a decrease in demand, by making consumers' lives harder and more expensive. Like, so the prime rate, which is the kind of the base borrowing rate in the United States— was 3.5% in March 2022. And the Fed has raised uh, the rate by about uh, 0.25% every couple of months since that time. And today, the prime rate is at 8.5%. And so the cost for borrowing money for a consumer has gone up 2.4 times, Mm. right? (laughs) 2.4x the cost of borrowing money before and that's what's driving down the cost of goods because none of us can afford to fucking buy them. <laughs> and so again, it's no fucking wonder that even though economic indicators are going in somewhat the right direction, all of our lives are harder to make that happen. So it, it which adds insult to injury to your point about the drivers of inflation because we're not solving the root cause. In fact, in some ways we might be making supply chain and goods availability worse by making it more expensive for companies to invest in growing, you know, in building more plants and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we're doing nothing to address the corporate greed that's really driving up the cost of goods. And so all of us like are, are not only like, that's not only the case for consumer goods, right? It's also the case for the other parts of our lives that were already a problem in 2019 if you're forced to take on debt i don't know ie medical debt because we've got a fucking onerous draconian healthcare system that's going to cost more now if you want to buy a home despite you know a housing affordability crisis your mortgage rate is going to be way higher now it's going to be more less affordable for you to buy a house and so even adjusting for the increase in wages we have Eaten up so much of that in the cost of funding our lives, in order to pay for corporate greed, yeah. and it's fucking depressing.
0: Look, a lot of people might argue that some of the criticisms that I've had about other alternatives that he could have gone for, uh, that that Joe Biden could have gone for, are done through the legislature, and because we had a razor-thin yeah. majority in the Senate, that that's kind of just a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. And that's a fair criticism, but here's here's the point that I would make to that. He fought like hell yeah, to try to get Build Back Better passed. It didn't pass. But you know what he did eventually get? The Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. which, although it wasn't as good as Build Back Better, it was still a significant piece of legislation. And I think that a huge reason why he passed that was because of how hard he fought for Build Back Better. So, the point that I would make is that maybe if he fought for a corporate windfalls tax, mm-hmm. or, or if he fought for, um, if he fought harder for price gouging, maybe those exact things wouldn't have passed. But maybe an iteration of them would have. Yeah, yeah. Because the bully pulpit is real. Mm-hmm. All right. His role as the president. Does set in a lot of ways the legislative agenda of Congress, um, especially back when the Democrats controlled both the House of Representatives and the uh, and the Senate. Mm-hmm. So the final thing that I would say, the final biggest disappointment that I would say about Biden economics is, of course, healthcare. Yeah, the leading cause of bankruptcy in America is, of course, job loss and medical debt. Mm-hmm. Now, one of my biggest criticisms of Joe Biden during the primary was the fact that he was against Medicare for All,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is something that we desperately need. Instead, he fought he fought and fought for the idea of a public option. He was saying, this is the way to go. This is the way to go. And then as soon as he became president, what was already a compromise that was not sufficient He just completely abandoned it. He never mentioned it again. (laughs) He never mentioned it again. (laughs) (laughs) Like this was like fucking 50% of the debates in the primary involved healthcare, involved him talking about how star spangled awesome a public option is. And then he fucking abandons it as soon as he gets elected. Yep. And again, maybe, maybe if he had fought for it, maybe it wouldn't have passed in an exact, in its exact iteration but maybe it would have. Yeah. He didn't even try though. Mm -hmm. So here's what I would say about Biden economics, Bidenomics, as he calls it. If we were going to grade it, I would give it a D plus still passing, Mm -hmm. still passing. And the plus I, I would put in there because of the inflation reduction act Mm -hmm. still passing, but, Damn, it's still so far away from where we need to be that I just, like, you can you can barely, you can barely even see it. And now it's time for a more
1: lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips
0: for Good every week? Well, Michael, I'm so glad you asked, because we do Tips for Good every week because... The river was deep, but I swam it. Okay. The road was long, but I ran it. Mm -hmm. So please don't tell me to can it. I have one thing to say, and that's, damn it, Janet, I love you. (laughs) Wow. Um, I don't really know what to do with that. (laughs) What is that? You serious? Yeah, what is that? Bro, that's Rocky Horror Picture Show.
1: Oh, that makes sense. They do a lot of AA <laughs> rhymes in that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: man. Have you have you not seen Rocky Horror Picture Show? No, I have seen it. I have seen it. Okay. I'm not okay. a fanatic, I will say. But you know I, what? We I I resent the term fanatic. <laughs> All right. I am a connoisseur. Of a connoisseur of the sweet of a cult classic. The sweet of the sweet Tim cult classic. Tim
1: Curry Giblets.
0: <laughs> hey. He, <laughs> on display he rocks. throughout. Hey, hey, Tim Curry is rocking that lingerie. Absolutely. Honestly. I mean he Tim Curry looks beautiful in that lingerie. He yes. is. He is. Or he
1: I guess he was. I think he's passed away now, which is really sad.
0: Wait, did he? I'm pretty sure. Let me check. I don't want I don't to think Tim Curry died. I I hope he didn't die. This is news to me. If he did, I'm pretty sure I heard that he was sick, but I'm I didn't hear that he died. I'm pretty sure he's still alive, right? Whoa, he is. He I he is still alive. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, you had me worried there, bud. Me too. I'm sorry.
1: I'm so sorry. I just. I, wow! There he goes. Good for him. Well, I'm, I'm glad, glad he is alive it. because yeah, me too. because you know
0: what? Why? Tim Curry being alive, yeah, it makes the world a better place. It
1: sure does.
0: It really does. Which coincidentally is actually why we do tips for good as well.
1: Oh, true. Not because of Tim Curry and not, not because, because of Tim Curry and lingerie. Although if he
0: wants to come on the show, like oh my you gosh. know,
1: I I don't know if we, he's political or anything. We but... won't mistake you for dead if you come on the show. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so michael (laughs) what is our tip for good this week well nathan
1: our tip for good this week is to pay attention to your local elections so Mm. yes the year is 2023 which is an odd number which for many of you may signal that you don't have to worry about voting but for Many places in the country, that is not true at all. And there are actually- Especially really, in Virginia, New Jersey. Yes, there are really important races that are happening in many places throughout the country. We got gubernatorial races in Kentucky and Louisiana and Mississippi. Right. Um, we've got basically control of the Virginia and uh, state legislature,
0: which is fucking crazy. We've got... Does New Jersey have an off-off year election off year election this year? Because I know that they have off year elections for governor. Do you know if they have off year elections for their uh, for their legislature? Yes, we've got yeah, okay. we've got legislative
1: state legislatures which are uh, having elections in again Louisiana, Mississippi, and then New Jersey. Um, although New Jersey is pretty solidly blue, unlike Virginia, which is potentially moving red in which case like abortion in the state of virginia is fucking gone and that's a fucking problem um yeah we've also got supreme court uh elections and races in pennsylvania and wisconsin and the wisconsin one is uh really huge um and again abortion is potentially on the ballot there as well as a result of that so like there are elections all over the place. Pay attention. We've got elections in Washington. Um, I just got my ballot in the mail along with my election guide because Washington's fucking awesome, and they just give you the information that you need to vote. It's great. Mm. Um, but I if you don't live to go in a to state, the local courthouse. Yeah, if you don't live in a state where you know they try to get you to vote, don't miss it because your vote will really matter.
0: And that's it for good.
1: So it's no secret. this show, we tend to lean slightly democratic in our policies and our political perspective. You know, we don't pretend like we're super conservative or anything like that. And it turns out that we're right. (laughs) So (laughs) Bit anticlimactic, really. (laughs) Yeah, big, big, big surprise there. Thanks for listening to the spectrum. And that's the (laughs) the end of the episode. (laughs) Um, So we say that because I think I think for a lot of democratic policies, um, like not only do they like seem like the right thing to do, but they also seem like the right thing for people's welfare and ultimately for people's lives. Um, Yeah. But it's not always like we don't always have a study to point to that says this democratic policy is good for people. You know,
0: some of them are based on intuition or economic studies or things like that. But, and we can definitely look at some general numbers. Yeah. Uh, For example, if you, if you look at the center for disease control, the life expectancy per state, if you look at the top 10 states in terms of life expectancy, one of them is a red state. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if you took it, if you look at the bottom uh 10 states in terms of life expectancy one of them is a blue state Mm -hmm. yeah and i think yeah (laughs) i I think that's really like interesting and i think
1: life expectancy is a cool way to sum it all up basically we have like it's a really strong proxy for welfare not only and like well-being not only because it's hard to argue that someone has high well-being if they're dead but also, because it just captures a bunch of economic, political, social
0: inputs that yeah. um, the government has the ability to influence and control. Yeah, I hear that that is a pretty major health issue, and, and it's actually death. the the leading cause of death for for everybody. Yeah, is ultimately death itself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and so, it's a little depressing being a you know Democrat or a you know liberal leaning podcast. Where we, you know, assume that our policies are good for people, and yet, the United States, relative to other high-income countries, has been at the bottom of the pack and getting worse uh, in terms of life expectancy for a while. So, in 2016, uh, Americans here on the
0: pod are (laughs) pro-life.
1: We're pro-life, way more pro-life than. People that are capital <laughs> P, capital L, pro-life. Um, so women had an average life expectancy of 81.4 years, which is three years below the female average for other high-income countries, and 5.8 years below the, the highest uh, life expectancy country for women, and life expectancy for men in the United States is seventy six point four years, which is three point four years below the average male life expectancy for other high income countries. We have been uh, at the like bottom of the pack of the twenty two highest income countries um, yeah. since like the the two thousands, and
0: yeah. That's a bad indicator for American well-being. And fun fact, uh, the average life expectancy for a U.S. Senator is 20 million years. (laughs) Exactly. That's also (laughs) the same length of time that they will serve in the U.S. Senate. (laughs) Um,
1: And so, yeah, so ultimately, like, living in the U.S. is less common (laughs) than in other (laughs) high-income countries. And so... There are a number of re- like things that could potentially go into this. And a in 2013, the National Research Council uh, commissioned a report uh, which found basically like five potential explanations for the divergence and the underperformance of American life expectancy. So they focused on the public health and medical uh, system, individual behaviors, socioeconomic factors, uh, physical and social environments and policies and social values Um, and there's been a ton of studies on these various things but the study we're talking about today uh, takes advantage of america's kind of natural experiment in the fact that we have 50 states all of whom have control uh, over the policy or large control over the policies that influence the life and well-being of the people in those states and so we get kind of a natural experiment where we can compare why West Virginia has, uh, in 2017, had a life expectancy of 74.6 years, uh, which would put it at ranked 93rd if it were a country in terms of life expectancy, versus Hawaii with an, a- with an average life expectancy of 81.6 years, which would put it close to the top of the pack if it were its own
0: country. So, what? Yeah. Which one thing that I found kind of interesting about this entire topic is that it actually proved a law of nature that we've discussed on the pod several times. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, the Reagan Rule. <laughs> and and what's that, so Nathan? The Reagan Rule. Uh, Aside from taking lunches from children. <laughs> <laughs> the Reagan Rule. It's a it's a law of nature that that shows that every single horrific problem that the United States faces right now economically can be traced back to a stupid fucking decision that Ronald Reagan made. And interestingly enough, I did not expect this for this (laughs) one, but this actually is an example of the Reagan rule. It's remarkable how
1: robust that rule is at predicting why things are so fucking (laughs) shitty.
0: Yeah. So, um, the the Washington Post uh, study that we're going to be talking a lot about for this one talks about how one of the biggest reasons why uh, state lawmakers are given such autonomy, specifically over how federal safety net dollars are spent, can be traced back to Ronald Reagan's push for state empowerment during the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that the ways in which federal safety net dollars that were provided to the states were kind of given with very few strings attached mm-hmm. as part of, as part of a Reagan era policy to basically promote state's rights. Apparently it led to red states being dog shit and blue states being decent mm-hmm. at this. Yeah. It's, it's another remarkable. Reagan rule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is absolutely remarkable. Um, So, this Washington Post study that we're looking at, it kind of narrowed down the scope by looking at three counties that are relatively comparable because they're right next to each other, mm-hmm. and, and that's important because, you know, as I was as I was talking about earlier, we can look at the life expectancy and we can look at the fact that the top ten, that nine out of the top ten life expectancy states are blue states and nine out of the bottom 10 are red states. We can look at that, but of course, you know, one of the, one of those top 10 states is a red state and one of the bottom 10 is a blue state. So, you know, different aspects of different parts of the country will affect how long you live in different ways. So the best way you can sort of control it is to find counties that are relatively close together, have relatively similar living conditions, but are in different states. And the example that this article uses is, I am going to have a tough time pronouncing some of the names of these counties. (laughs) Um, Chautauqua. Okay, that one I know. The Chautauqua County in New York, Erie County in Pennsylvania, and um, Ashtabula, (laughs) I think that's how you say it, uh, in Ohio. And all of these are kind of bordering on each other and um, they're on the coast of Lake Erie. Now the things that this study specifically looks at are three main areas. First off their policies regarding safety with vehicles. Second policy regarding uh, tobacco and third policy regarding general health care. All right. Basically what are they actually spending on Medicaid? Are they, you know, have they expanded? Uh, have they expanded programs involving Medicaid? Uh, have they reduced funding on initiatives to try to prevent smoking? All of that, and we find that within Ohio, you have a significantly lower life expectancy hmm. and a higher rate of smoking than you have in a state such as New York or Pennsylvania that have uh, a higher. Like have higher taxes regarding tobacco. Um, and on the issue of vehicles, uh, Ohio does not expressly have laws requiring you to wear a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. So compare that again to New York, which does, and Pennsylvania, which does, and you can see uh you can see a major difference in basically mortality. And in Ohio, they one of the one of the things that this article that uh, lays out this study focuses on is a a guy who runs a funeral home in that Ohio county and how often he is burying people that are too young, really, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and how things like lung cancer, how things like um, just you know health issues in general that. They weren't able to afford to to um uh to do anything about, uh, and vehicular accidents have a major effect. And what's funny is that this in in this article, this same funeral guy, the the same guy that runs a funeral home where he actually is regularly burying people, that you know by his own admission he says like these people are too young. He admits that when he's driving around town, he's speeding and he's not wearing a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which that kind of blows my mind a little mm-hmm. bit. And that actually, in some ways, gave me a little bit pause on some of my automatic inclinations, at least about cigarettes, because Mm -hmm. there were also some examples within this that we're talking about instances of people that quit smoking specifically because it got too expensive. Yeah. Now, on the issue of safety belts, I think that it's kind of a no-brainer because... Yeah, Yeah. it almost surprises
1: me that there's even a political divide among yeah. conservatives and Democrats.
0: Well, I think the argument that a person might make is, you know, if you don't wear a safety belt, then the only person that affects is you, and you should have the right to put yourself in as much danger as you want. But here's the sure. thing. The body is a projectile.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so I don't buy that argument. I don't buy that argument because the body is a projectile. And if you're not wearing a safety belt, you know, maybe maybe if you were just putting yourself at risk, maybe I'd be like, okay, it doesn't need to be a law. Mm-hmm but you aren't just putting yourself at risk. You are a projectile yeah. and you could fly out of a window and hit somebody and kill them. Mm-hmm. That could happen. And that's not safe. So I think that, you know, if we, if we take the, uh, even a libertarian interpretation of the law, which, you know, usually comes down to as soon as your actions put somebody else at risk, that's when the government should take action. I would say that that still satisfies that overall, that overall burden. Mm-hmm. Now, tobacco, I think, is a little bit more tricky. On one hand, we're not talking about bans on tobacco. Yeah. The yeah. way that we would be talking about bans on not wearing a seatbelt. But we're also talking about an issue in which there is significantly less collateral damage. I mean, there's secondhand smoke, mm-hmm. but overall, I would say that mostly the person you're affecting if you're a smoker is you. Yeah, primarily, yeah. The primary, like, people affected by secondhand smoke are, like, people that you,
1: like, live with if you smoke in the home, like your kids, your spouse, that kind of thing, as opposed to, like, the general public.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, So, you know, if we want to have discussions about regulations regarding smoking in the house if you have children, like, I think that could potentially be an interesting conversation. But overall, Mm -hmm. I think that... It is one of those things where you know I, I would never smoke yeah. uh, a cigarette. I would never smoke a cigarette. I haven't smoked a cigar in like eight years, almost at this <laughs> point. <laughs> and even when I would sometimes smoke a cigar, it would be like one cigar every four months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so I would never, I would never do that. I don't think anybody should smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I also do believe that people make their own choices, and you know, we should be trusting adults to make their own choices. Mm-hmm. But the fact that there does seem to be an impact on life expectancy just simply by having a tax on cigarettes, yeah, the fact that that is actually making a difference, that does kind of give me pause. And that mm-hmm. does make me wonder if a more, you know, Democrat approach to that is actually more warranted. Yeah. So I don't know. What, what do you think, Michael? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, you know me, I'm
1: uh, a fan of like libertarian paternalist, like poke in the right poke people in the right direction type things yeah i find like i don't know i find syntaxes to be a little bit annoying mainly yeah um just because it's like so uh kind of like holier than now i guess yeah i hate <laughs> that it's called that yeah. as well <laughs> yeah know? my I, the thing the thing for addiction with me though like that makes it more complicated like if it yeah, if we're if we're sure. talking about a recreational thing that people can use that's like not good for them but you know you know not like doesn't gain control over their lives then it's like okay well maybe this we shouldn't be judging so much but the fact that like you know it's a, an addictive substance where like it's it's often that you'll be targeted with advertising when you're most susceptible to it, when you're, like, y- you, a youth, and then you become addicted, and it becomes, like, a lifelong thing that shortens your life. Like, all of these things kind of make it seem like it's something that the government should be pretty proactive about. Um, yeah. But again, I, I don't know. I think it's, like, limit the impact of advertising. Even prevent companies from advertising yeah. for cigarettes. Like, I think there are a lot of ways to go about it. Yeah. Um, that don't just make it worse for the lives of the people that have already had their lives shortened.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I guess yeah. the other thing that I do kind of like about the idea, and again, I, I will say I'm kind of on the fence about, uh, about cigarette taxes, mm-hmm. like uh, increased taxes on cigarettes, just because of, you know, it is, it is partially the holier, holier than thou aspect of it. Sure. Um, it is partially the you know the, the freedom aspect of it. Um, the thing I do kind of like about it though, is when you tax it and then you put that tax money towards paying for programs that actually help people that are victims of it. Yeah. So totally. in, in a lot of ways, they're actually kind of getting their money back in some way mm-hmm. which yeah, yeah. somewhat kind of makes me a, a little bit more open to, open to the idea.
1: Yeah, you makes know? sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Um, because you're not you're not banning it. It's not like mm-hmm. you're banning it, you're just making it more expensive. Yeah. So I, I I don't know. Regardless of how you might feel about it from a, you know, moral point of view, it can't be denied yeah. that having a cigarette tax does increase the life expectancy mm-hmm. and not having it decreases the life expectancy. That's yep. that cannot be denied. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And what's so interesting is that like this, I, th- I love the methodology of this study, that it's comparing, it's like a case study, comparing environments that are naturally similar, except for, you know, these arbitrarily drawn political lines, which make them very different. Um, yeah. But what's really interesting also is that these impacts are robust, even at scale and even over a very long period of time. And so even if you doubt like this one study, it's not the only study on this topic and it it's just become like the the jury is back. The research is in conservative policies tend to drive shorter lives for people. And so like yeah, this the study that Nathan talked through focused on very specific policies. And the study I want to talk through focuses does more of a correlated a correlative analysis of uh a, 135 different policies focused on a bunch of different policy domains so basically they focus on 16 policy domains uh, abortion campaign finance civil rights and liberties criminal justice education environment gun control health and welfare housing and transportation immigration private sector labor and public sector labor as well as lgbtq rights marijuana use taxes and voting Right, and so what this study does is it looks at the 1970s through 2014. Right, so this period that Nathan mentioned, when the United States, um, you know, the the states in the United States are becoming increasingly polarized and gaining increasing control over the uh, the welfare uh, of the people in their state, as like federal influence is. Uh, and control over federal funds is, like, passed down to states. So they become, like, increasingly able to control the welfare of their people. Um, And this particular study also incorporated uh, policies about tobacco, similar to the Washington Post study, um, and as well as just the total volume of policymaking in a state to assess whether it was just the kind of engagement of the government as opposed to the specific policies that people were enacting. And basically, the study looks at 135 policies across these different areas and assigned them um, along a continuum, uh, whether they were liberal-leaning or conservative-leaning. So these are things like, you know, for, like, economic regulation. If there's more economic regulation, that's more liberal. If there's less, that's less liberal and more conservative um and things like that and so then like each policy was kind of assigned these scores along this conservative to liberal continuum and then um basically each state kind of received a score of how liberal their policies were over this time period in any given year versus how conservative they were um and ultimately what they found was that um Like, the results are pretty freaking compelling. It's kind of crazy. What they found was first that states with more liberal... So, like, more liberal states tended to have longer lives, right? So states with more liberal policies were generally associated with longer life expectancy. The second thing they found was the more liberal version of these policies that was used in these states tended to also be positively correlated with longer life expectancies. So if you have Medicare for All, for example, which is not actually in the study, but this is just illustrative, if you have Medicare for All, that's a longer life expectancy than if you just have a public option, and that's a longer life expectancy than if you just have private insurance. So they found that positive correlation there as well. And this one's crazy. They also found that these findings of life expectancy were um, nearly twice as impactful for women relative to men. So more conservative policies shortened women's lives more than men's lives. That
0: does not surprise me. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't.
1: But it's remarkable that it comes through in the data. This is crazy. And so what they found was that, on average, U.S. life expectancy would be 2.8 years longer for women and 2.1 years longer for men if all of the states uh, enacted more liberal policies. And that, like, we've had, you know, know, some slight upward trajectory in life expectancy between 2010 and 2014, but that would have been 25% steeper for women and 13% more of an improvement for men with more liberal policies, which just like, so it's so interesting that like the Washington Post kind of case studies are finding this connection between liberal policies and longer lives. And that like, even in aggregate, when you run regression analyses on these same things, you see the same thing. Like we're talking about a pretty robust link here. And so this regression study obviously can't draw a causal link. And they only really broke out demographics by sex as opposed to um, breaking it out by like race and ethnicity and educational attainment. Which I'll, I would
0: want to see that. Absolutely.
1: And I think that's, that's obviously key. I think that makes a huge difference. And what you control for is going to be a huge driver here. Um, but I think combining like the, the scale of the regression analysis with the case study from the Washington Post... To me, paints a pretty compelling picture that, like, liberal policies make people's lives longer. And if we're thinking about life expectancy as a measure of an aggregate kind of measure of well-being, right, like health, um, success, you know, that kind of thing, then liberal policies are better. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. The D-Bag
0: Awards. So, Nathan, what's a D-Bag Award? Well, Michael, the D-Bag Award is an award that we like to give out to people that just make the stupidest, self-defeating arguments that are the equivalent of running into a shed and just stepping on a rake and having it come up at a speed that somehow defies physics (laughs) and just smacks (laughs) them in the face. Which, by the way hurts like a son of a bitch. Yeah. And of, yeah. Course, and of course it is named after Alan Dershowitz mm. for that fateful time that he stood in front of the United States House of Representatives and tried to make the argument that it was completely okay for Donald Trump to pressure Ukraine to investigate his political opponent and cheat in an election because he believed that it was within the nation's best interest... That he win the election.
1: Mm. Amazing. (laughs) Nathan, I'm sorry, but there's just no way that we're going to find someone that makes an argument that rises to that kind of total D-bag level. I mean, there's just, there's no way that we're going to find another Alan Dershowitz out there in the world that's going to make an argument that shitty.
0: Well, Michael... Most weeks I would say that you're incorrect mm-hmm. and then I would say, here's here's our D bag this week uh-huh. and here's what they said. Yeah. But uh this week you're actually not wrong. We Fuck can't yeah. find we can't find somebody that is dumber than Alan Dershowitz.
1: Wow. Kind of a so he's our d bag this week.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> the original d bag is, o- is back. The o d bag is back.
1: Holy! The shit. original
0: d bag is back for oh, a triumphant man. return. This rivals like,
1: like deep like awards that go to like U.S. conservative House members. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> <That's> pretty remarkable <laughs> and sad. Okay, so yes. what the fuck did this guy say that would land him on our show yet again?
0: So Michael. It's a day that ends in Y, which means there's another horrible fucking take about the Israel-Palestine conflict that is spoken by some conservative douchebag. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Not surprising. Alan Dershowitz was uh, having a debate with our good buddy Cornell West okay. uh, on Sean Hannity's show. Boy, that's a about bit the like... Israel-Palestine
1: conflict. <laughs> that's a bit uh, unfair. Cornell West is a genius and. Uh...
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean <laughs> I mean maybe if they had like five other people would be fair, but no. Nope. <laughs> so so West was talking about how we should care about Palestinian children being killed. Um, um fucking hot take. Fucking hot take. To which uh, I wanna read Dershowitz response to that, then West's response, and then Dershowitz's <sighs> <laughs> response to that. just buckle up folks buckle up so dershowitz responds by saying hamas is the one responsible for the killing of palestinian children also hamas has a term it's called the cnn strategy and the cnn strategy is to induce israel into killing palestinian children by using them as human shields then parade the bodies out on cnn and and you'll see what happens. People like Cornell West will engage in crocodile tears, blame it on Israel, when the entire blame is on the Palestinians, Hamas, for using their children, their children as human shields. Okay, pause. We're not at the d part yet. But let's, <laughs> let's pause this for a second. Let's talk about the whole human shields argument for a second. The reason why, theoretically, the use of a human shield is supposed to work is because the person that you are shielding them from are the good guys. Mm. And good guys don't kill children. Yeah. So if, say, some wacko had taken over a school and was holding children hostage, the right response is not to blow up the school. The right response is to do everything you can to protect the people that are being used as human shields apparently Dershowitz's strategy is just blow up the fucking school. Wow. Yeah, D-bag point number one.
1: <laughs> so D-bag point number one, Like we're not... He's he's right that you have to blame the hostage takers. Absolutely. But that isn't an well, argument but, for shooting the but, hostage.
0: <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I'm not even sure if that's a good argument here because like, it's not even necessarily hostages. They're just fucking there. Like, they're yeah, just yeah, yeah. living there in Palestine. They're just yeah. living there. And the thing is, Israel has specifically said, we talked about this on the pod last week, that they're not focusing on accuracy. They're focusing on damage. Mm-hmm. All right? They specifically said that. They don't care about how much destruction they do. They're focusing on damage. That's what they said. Mm. That's what they said. So, anyway, uh, West shoots back by saying... Don't accuse me of crocodile tears, my brother, which I love. I love, mm-hmm. love Cornell West so much. I love like, you know, he even when he's going apeshit at you, he's still respectful, mm-hmm. you know, and he just calls everybody my brother. Like, I just I love that about him. Anyways, uh, don't accuse me of crocodile tears, my brother. I have the same outrage when Palestinian babies are killed when Jewish babies are killed or Israeli babies are killed. I want you to have the same indignation when Palestinians are killed, which again, sounds like the most reasonable fucking thing in the world. Mm -hmm. All right. Kids killed bad. You, I mean, you don't need a fucking moral philosophy professor (laughs) to explain that to you. But apparently Dershowitz does (laughs) because here's what he fucking says next. It shouldn't be the same outrage You can't make a moral comparison. When Nazi kids were killed in the bombings of Dresden, I didn't have the same comparison when Jewish kids were put in gas chambers and crematoriums. You're a professor of theology. Don't you understand the moral difference between deliberately murdering a kid and having collateral damage because they're human shields? So for those of you that are unfamiliar with the bombings of Dresden, there's a good reason why you're unfamiliar with them. It's because we weren't taught about Dresden in school. And the reason why we weren't taught about Dresden in school is because it is a fucking stain on our military history. So Dresden was a German city in World War II. There was a civilian city that towards the end of the war, uh, the Allied powers launched this massive, massive bombing on it where they dropped tens of thousands of bombs. There were so many firebombs that it actually created a mushroom cloud in a similar sort of vein as you would see in a nuclear bomb. Mm. And more people died, more civilians died in the firebombing of Dresden than in Nagasaki and Hiroshima combined. Holy shit. But of course we don't learn about that in history class because that's kind of embarrassing. All right. Purposely killing civilians? That's kind of embarrassing. That's kind of bad apparently, people shit. Yeah. That's bad people shit. But apparently, Dershowitz didn't get that memo. Mm-hmm.
1: Boy, I like <laughs> because that. He's... I like referring to Nazi kids. That's exactly <laughs> yeah, the Nazi kind of- Nazi kids. Yeah. Jesus. That's ex- I mean, that's exactly the mistake so many people are making. Kids can't be Nazis, guys. Kids can't be Hamas. Kids can't be terrorists. They're fucking
0: kids. Yeah. These are Kids. All right, and again, you're a professor of, of theology. Like you're a professor of theology. I'm sorry, but like, you, if your side is the defense of kids and dismissing the murder of kids as collateral damage, mm-hmm. you cannot feign outrage over somebody. Yeah. You you cannot like you you have no fucking leg to stand on. And also, yeah, that wasn't even the Nazis using them as human shields. They just lived there. Mm-hmm. They just lived in Dresden. Yeah. They just fucking lived there. Just like the people, the children in Palestine just fucking live there. Yeah. And if you're the good guy, you don't do something like that. Literally, mm-hmm. this argument boils down to hey, back in my day no one gave a fuck when you kill kids. What's the deal? Yeah. It's getting so as you can't even purposely murder kids without a bunch of liberals crying over yeah. it.
1: Yeah. And even if you see, like, even if you give him, even if you accept the moral idea that someone being killed as part of collateral damage is different from someone intentionally murdering someone, that's a really fine and thin distinction. Like, it just isn't that different saying, I'm willing to accept your death, than it is to say, I'm going to kill you.
0: Here's what I would say. If you if you make a decision that you know is going yeah. to kill innocent children, mm-hmm. even if like you weren't in your mind thinking like my goal is to kill innocent children, mm-hmm. if you make a decision and you know that the result will be killing innocent children, yeah. I honestly I I see that as just as bad as you purposely targeting them. Mm-hmm. Like I, I see that as morally equivalent because ultimately it's it's the same result and the same prior knowledge. Yep. You are making a decision that is going to kill children and you knew it at the time that you made it. Mm-hmm. And I just it blows my mind that this fucking idiot used the argument of, well if we care about children being being killed here then we'll have to care about children <laughs> always being killed. Pretty soon you're not going to be allowed to kill any children ever. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Alan, oh, buddy, man. just stop talking. stop talking. Just shut the fuck up.
1: Yeah, dude. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, So congratulations to the D-bag himself, Alan Dershowitz, for getting this week's D-bag. And now we will end our show, as we usually do, with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week?
0: Michael, my highlight this week is that on Saturday, Jess and I had our baby shower. Oh, that's so exciting. It was so exciting. It was, you know, God, the the love from my family members, mm. the the things that we got that saves us a fuck ton of money, yeah. <laughs> saves us a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, It just, it made me feel like I'm bringing my child into a world where there is a massive support system for her already. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I just... I, I'm, I'm really excited to be a father, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited to be a father and to just have so many people around me that are, mm-hmm. that are going to support me and support my daughter. Man, that is so wonderful, dude. That sounds mm-hmm. great. What about you, Michael? What's your highlight?
1: Well, compared to that, <laughs> <blame>. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my highlight is that winter is finally starting to set in. Uh, And I'm (laughs) so excited for it. Um, So we just had, like, the first kind of pretty heavy snowfall in the mountains. So that's preparing for ski season. And I just found out today that a mountain nearby where we go regularly is supposed to have its opening day in just a month for skiing. And it's, like, one of my favorite activities. I'm just so excited to get back into the season. So. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And now we'll thank all the amazing people that made this show possible. So thank you to our incredible patrons, Jerry DeViller, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen. And thank you to Kayla, our incredible editor, for all they do to make this show possible. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to The Brist Spectrum. And you'll hear from us again next week.